For the better part of my life, I have lived in a culture that while it wasn't Christian in the sense of everyone being a believer in Jesus, it was a culture that had respect for the Christian worldview. Uh, in fact, many of my contemporaries would often say to me, well, I'm not a Christian, but I respect your values and what you believe. That was for the better part of my life. I lived in a culture like that. Uh, the culture that I live in now is quite a bit different. The culture that I live in now not only doesn't believe in Jesus, which that was just as true before, but something has shifted. What has shifted is that now we are hearing that it is people who believe in Jesus, who are Bible-believing Christians, who are in fact the people who hinder the thriving of our communities and of our culture. And that therefore, people who believe that way, people like me, should be opposed and in some ways stopped and hindered from any advancement of their views. I uh, took to Google this week that great infinite wisdom and I Googled this, um, evangelical Christians are to blame. And here are some things that evangelical Christians are blamed for. Uh, they're blamed for mass murderers who do so on the grounds of being a white supremacist. Evangelicals are blamed for the decline in the Christian faith because they refuse to get with the program and adapt to modern beliefs. Evangelical Christians are blamed for the decline in public education. They are blamed for opposition to abortion. And they are blamed for any anxieties that LGBTQ people feel because they disagree with their, those beliefs and those, the lifestyles associated with those beliefs. You see, we've shifted. Where once there was a culture that said, yeah, we don't believe in Jesus, but we'll respect people who do, we now are entering a world in which People say, we don't believe in Jesus, and you who do, you're the reason for anything that's going wrong here. It is just this that we can find help and strength from Ezra chapter 4. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. <clears throat> we will discover in this chapter that opponents to God's plan and God's people are real. They're real. <clears throat> they have a variety of tactics to stop revival. Those tactics, as we will see here in this chapter, include the offerings of compromise, intimidation, exaggerated accusation, and legal maneuvering. All of these 
were employed in Ezra's day to stop the revival that was happening among God's people there. And I would submit to you that those same things are being engaged in today to hinder God's people from revival today. Ezra chapter 4 is where we are, and we'll stand for the reading of God's word this morning. As I read this, please note that the phrase beyond the river is the name of a province. It's like the word Illinois is the name of our state. The name of this province is beyond the river. It just means beyond the river Euphrates. Okay. <clears throat> now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants... The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, customer toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace... And it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls refinished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. 
and I, make a dec- and I made a decree, and, a, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a, dec- make a decree that these men be made to cease, and this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter, for why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Please have a seat. Opponents to God's plan and people are real. They have a variety of tactics to stop revival, including compromise, intimidation, exaggerated accusation, and legal maneuvering. Uh, This raises a question, how do discouragement, fear, and politics cause us to lose sight of our God? This is a question that is relevant for the people of Ezra's day getting discouraged in rebuilding, afraid of the people around them, and the whole mess of the politics involved could easily cause them to lose sight of their God. We too, in the culture in which we live, can experience discouragement, no small degree of fear or intimidation. And as we look at the political turmoil, it's easy for us to lose sight of our God. Now, in verses 1 and 2, what appears to be a reasonable offer is really a plot of evil. What happens is that the people that were living in the land at the time, they weren't Jews. They were people that 150 years earlier had been brought from other lands into Judah and Benjamin. And the people from Judah and Benjamin had been sent into exile to Babylon and all parts around the kingdom of, uh, of Assyria and later Babylon and Persia. They were scattered all over. And now these Jews are returning and here are all of these peoples that have been sent there to live there and they've been living there for 150 years and the people that are there don't like the, Jew- the Jewish people returning. They don't want them to return. And so what happens here is that these people, these people who were from all parts of Mesopotamia that have now been transplanted into Judah and Benjamin, they're called adversaries here. They approach Zerubbabel and they say, hey, how about we work with you? We'll work together on the building of this temple. Let's, because we've been worshiping your God just as you do. We've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon. That's 150 years before. This sounds like a reasonable offer, doesn't it? But it's really a plot of evil. This is false compromise. 
They're called adversaries here for a reason. And by the way, sometimes it's a hard thing to distinguish adversaries from people who have no twisted agenda. It's not good to be paranoid, but it's also not good to fail to see evil where it exists either, is it? These folks are not followers of the true God. Do you know why we know that? Look at verse 2. Let us build with you for we worship, notice the word, your God as you do. It's not their God. We worship your God. You see, the way the peoples all throughout the ancient Near East reasoned was that all gods are local. And so what you do to cover your bases is you worship as many of them as you can. And so what these folks were doing is saying, hey, we'll come and help you build this uh, temple uh, because we worship your God just like you do. You see? What's, What's commandment number one? You'll have no other gods before me. They aren't followers of the true God. Their belief is to follow many gods, and that includes the local gods. Not only that, but they claim to be making sacrifices to the true God, but they clearly are not worshiping him according to God's word because they didn't use the priests, nor did they offer these sacrifices at the place where God told them to make sacrifices, which was at the temple in Jerusalem. They're sacrificing to him all over the place. Their offer is a hollow one. Let us build with you. I'll tell you what the reason is. The real idea is that they, by their participation, will be able to claim heritage and therefore permanent ownership of the land. Zerubbabel, in verse 3, clearly understands what is at stake. You have nothing to do with us. We alone will build a house to our God. And so in verses 4 and 5, you see that they change tactics. From compromise, a false compromise, they now move into discouragement, intimidation, and bribery. Discouragement, verse 4. The people of the land, that's these displaced peoples who have moved into Judah and Benjamin... They discouraged the people of Judah. And notice their intimidation. They made them afraid to build. And notice their bribery. They bribed counselors against them. This could be legal people. It could be others. But the point is, is that they they did all kinds of things to build as much of a bureaucratic opposition to the Jewish people's purpose to rebuild. Perhaps they paid off Tyre and Sidon to stop supplies. Perhaps they paid off local Persian officials. Perhaps they paid off caravans coming through so that the Jewish people could not buy or sell from those caravans. The text notes that the bribery was to get counselors to thwart the work. It seems that that involved getting legal representation for the legal battles that would be lying ahead. And they did this. These people of the land who came in as squatters They did this for decades. This isn't just a one-time deal, friends. They did this for decades. They frustrated their purpose, verse 5, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now that's just the first half of their opposition. 
we're going to read about the second half of their opposition. The first half of their opposition, the days of Cyrus and Darius, that's about 45 years of opposition. And altogether, they managed to stop the work during that time for about 10 years. Then the second opposition that happens in the days of Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, where the bulk of this uh, chapter comes from, is about 60 years of opposition and about seven years of stopping the work. So they worked at opposing God's people for over a hundred years and managed to keep any work from happening at all for 17 years in two different segments of time. It's a problem that would not go away. Uh, just to give you a sense, I want to take you on a little bit of a historical journey here, just to give you a sense of this. So this is Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria. So 150 years before the events here, Esarhaddon had brought these displaced peoples into Judah and Benjamin. Okay, it was his policy to move peoples around, destroy their temples, and in that way they would all have loyalty to him. Uh, then in the Persian period, they, uh, Cyrus said, no, 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 let's change that. Let's let everybody move back and rebuild their temples. Okay? But during the days of Cyrus, these displaced peoples there in Judah and Benjamin are now saying, wait a minute, we like it here, we want to stay here. We don't want these Jews coming back. We want to stop them. And so from the days of Cyrus the Great, starting in around 530 B.C., through his son Cambyses II, who's pictured on the right there kneeling, through Darius the Great, down to 486 B.C., so from 530 to 486 B.C., 45 years, these people are opposing God's people. They won't let go of it. And for 10 years of that time, they were able to stop them. It's a problem that wouldn't go away. Now, there's a second phase of opposition that happens during the reign of Ahasuerus. Do you see that in verse uh, 6? In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, they write this letter, and then the rest of the chapter is about this letter. Ahasuerus is about 20-year reign. By the way, he was Esther's husband, okay, just to connect you. And Artaxerxes, so from 485 to 424, about 60 years, they're trying to fight against the Jews, and altogether they get them to stop for about seven years altogether of building. It's a problem that doesn't go away. How is it? Oh, let me just give a little summary here. So Esarhaddon, that's the Assyrian guy. He exiled conquered peoples. He brought conquered peoples in. That was about 680 BC. Cyrus the Great makes the uh, idea of returning people and temples to their rightful place. And then right as Cyrus and Cambyses uh, uh, switch when Cyrus dies, the, the opposition causes the work to stop. The work stays stopped until 520 BC, then it's renewed. Then under Ahasuerus, Esther's husband, there's this renewal of opposition. And then in Artaxerxes' time, there is this work stopping again, renewed seven years later that we'll find out in later chapters of Ezra. But this is the, 
chapter 4 is that letter to Artaxerxes, okay? You're thinking, oh, Scott, enough with the history. Let me tell you why we do it. I tell you every time I, I, I uh, talk about this. It's because at some point in time, somebody here in this room is going to be at some college or university that will be told the Bible is full of lies. It has no con- connection to reality. It's a nice religious book and you can kind of have it in your heart to have a nice emotional feeling about it, but it isn't of anything of substance built in reality. The reason I show you all the pictures of those guys is so that you know archaeologically we have confirmation that these guys existed and that they lived at the times that the Bible says they lived. This is true truth, okay? We don't have to worry about, oh my, I wonder if the Bible can be trusted. Discouragement, fear, and politics can cause us to lose sight of God. Second question. How do lies and distortions of the truth damage the reputation of God's people? Here we're going to be focused on this second phase of opposition, this opposition during Artaxerxes. And you'll notice when it says in verse uh, um, uh, 7, the letter that they wrote, these bad guys wrote in opposition to the Jewish returnees, the letter was written in Aramaic. And in fact, the rest of Ezra chapter 4 and chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6 verse 18, is in the Aramaic language. It's not in Hebrew. Uh, There's also parts of chapter 7 that are in Aramaic, verses 12 to 26. Uh, Daniel, chapters 2 through 7, is in Aramaic. There's one verse in Jeremiah that's Aramaic. The the point is, is that Aramaic was the trade language of Mesopotamia at the time, and so when they are dealing with relationships of peoples and nations and governments at that time, they're going to use the language of commerce and legal dealings. Now notice in verses 7 to 10, the bureaucratic legalese in these verses. It kind of reads a little bit like some party of the first part says to party of the second part, blah, 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 right? Uh, Which only matters, by the way, when you have a dispute, right? Nobody cares about legal documents until there's a question. Then all of a sudden it becomes super important. Notice verse 8. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, wrote a letter as follows. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, the rest of their associates, judges, governors, officials, Persians, men of Eric, Babylonians, men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble, and that's a, a snapper, is a, a nickname for Ashurbanipal, an Assyrian king who lived around the time of Esarhaddon, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria. See how it's all in this bureaucratic legalese. And the whole point of it, in their writing it that way, is for these bad guys to say, you see, we have the proper legal standing. We are on the side of right and truth and the law. And boy, today, my friends, there are people who engage in the profession of law for the singular purpose of transforming our culture into a twisted and evil culture. And they use 
legal means to accomplish their twisted purposes. Note the distortions in verses 11 and 12. They've gone to Jerusalem. Well, they, yes, they went to Jerusalem, verse 12, but they didn't do so permanently. Not every one of the exiles is going to live in Jerusalem. And yes, they are rebuilding, but they aren't rebuilding it to be a rebellious or a wicked city. You see, they're distorting what they're saying, the, the, the intentions. Notice then in verse 13, the outright lies. If this city is rebuilt and the wall is finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. They won't be paying their taxes. That's an outright lie. By the way, these three words are probably three different kinds of taxes. Tribute on goods, custom on receiving them, the toll on the way through, you know, uh, on highways and so on. And it will be damaging to the royal revenue. I love how they say it. It says, uh, you know, because we eat the salt of the palace, that is, we get our salaries, we get our funding from you, O king, it would not be fitting for us to witness your dishonor by these people. Well, aren't they nice? <laughs> like they're saying, we have nothing but good intentions here and we're just interested in your honor, O king. And this will be damaging to the royal revenue. Now, if there's one thing that a king or go any government is concerned about is the impairment of the receiving of revenue, right? And so that's, what, that's, that's why they, they, they bring that to, to the accusation. I remember hearing a story about Michael Faraday, the inventor of the electric motor. And he went and showed his electric motor to the Prime Minister of England. The thing's just spinning around. It's just something that's spinning, you know. And uh, the Prime Minister says, well, what good is that? It just spins around. And Faraday replied, Someday, Mr. Prime Minister, you will be able to tax this. <laughs> and you see, that's something that kings and governments are very interested in. And so this is where, where they make their accusation and their lie. They won't be paying their taxes and that'll be damaging to the royal revenue. So they've distorted, they've lied. And notice verse 14, that they give the distorted lie now that they, the squatters, are on the right side of history and the Jews are on the wrong side. It's not fitting for us to, wit to witness the king's dishonor, so we sent and informed the king. You know, as though they have no interest other than the kings in this matter. And then verse 15, they make a Freedom of Information Act request. Search the book of the records. And you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, which is why it was laid waste. That's a distorted lie. And then a final threat, verse 16. We make it known to the king if the city's rebuilt and the walls are refinished, then you'll have no possession in the province beyond the river. You'll lose this province, king. It's going to fall out of your hands. If you let these guys get a grip on what they're doing, all the peoples of the province will rebel against you. You see how they're using lies and distortions of the truth to damage the reputation of God's people. And that's what's happening today. Lies and distortions of the truth are being told 
all to erode the reputation of God's people in the body politic. It's exactly what's happening now. So we have to ask the question, can God's enemies stop revival? That's what they're trying to do. Can they do that? Can they stop revival? The king replies, and he replies with the recipients and the receipt of the letter, you know, in kind of legal, legalese again. And then verse 19, the facts that you presented are found to be true. I made a decree, a search has been made, it's been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. Uh, by the way, this ignores clear and other information. I, I think we should always hold Proverbs 18.17 in our minds whenever we hear just one side of a story. Proverbs 18.17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And we need to be careful about that. And that's the king has not done that here. Yeah, rebellion and sedition. Mighty kings have ruled from there over the whole province of beyond the river. And that part is true. David and Solomon both ruled over that extent of that province beyond the river. And in fact, the king of Israel, Jeroboam II, and the king of Judah, Uzziah, in their time ruled together over that whole region. So that part is true. But notice what the king does, Artaxerxes. He rules in verse 21, that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And so for seven years, the work is stopped. He says, take care not to be slack. Do it now. Make this decree immediate. I want you to think for a moment about the sense of disaster and defeat for God's people here. Here are these people at great sacrifice left places that they had lived for 70 years. And they moved down back into Judah And it was a ruined land. It was a broken land. And they start to rebuild. And then these squatters come along and tell lies to the king. And the king says, stop. Can you imagine the sense of defeat and discouragement that they must be experiencing? The sense of loss. The sense of what must have been. Remember last week we looked at people who had seen the glory of the former temple and they wept even as there were people who saw it being, uh, the sacrifices being rebuilt, the foundation of the temple being laid, as they rejoiced, the sound couldn't be distinguished, the sound of weeping and the sound of joy. So it's intergenerational, right? But now this sense of disaster and defeat, by force they are stopped. Now verse 24 actually attaches to the events of verses 1 through 5. Remember I told you there were two periods of opposition? One period during Cyrus and Darius, and one period during Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. The first period for 45 years, the second one for about 60 years, which includes 10 years of stoppage and 7 years of stoppage. Verse 24 references back to that first opposition. 
So that what we're seeing when it says, then the work on the house of God to this in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, opponents to the scripture will look at that and go, well, Darius, Darius was before Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, so Ezra is clearly in error and wrong. To which I want to respond, learn how to read. Learn how to read. What verse 24 is doing is telling us it started back at this beginning and then it had problems in the end and we want you to know that this stuff that's happening at the end is still referenced to stuff that happened at the beginning. God's enemies have at least temporarily stopped revival. So now what do we do? How does this impact our world, my life? Let me share with you some ways. First, all is not lost when a battle is lost. All is not lost when a battle is lost. Here in this life, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, right? And there are going to be times where the Christian point of view loses where there are opponents who at least in the temporary moment of time win. All is not lost when a battle is lost. And the whole point of people chortling their victory when they win a battle against God's people is to discourage God's people into thinking, well, I guess all is lost, and to be discouraged. Do not be discouraged, friends. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Second application. This is fascinating to me. Has anybody ever heard in the New Testament of a people called the Samaritans? Yeah, you've heard of them? Samaritans. And you remember how the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans, so much so that they wouldn't even walk through Samaritan land, and they hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated them, and it was and Jesus, by contrast, I gotta get used to this stage. Jesus, by contrast, loved Samaritans. Loved Samaritans. Did you know that the people who opposed God's people here in Ezra chapter 4 for 105 years were the great-grandparents of people who became known as the Samaritans? This is why the Jewish people hated them. Okay? They hated Samaritans. Because they, memory lives long in the Middle East, friends. Memory lives long. And they don't ever forget this. They don't ever forget it. Jesus comes along radically different. He doesn't call opponents of God 
or opponents of God's people, his enemies. Instead, he welcomes them into relationship with him. And this is what we should recognize. There are many opponents of God and his people and his ways out in this world today and in our culture. But that does not give us any right to hate them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If, if somebody wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If somebody forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks of you. You see, this context that could cause us to go, oh, there's opponents to revival, let's hate them. Jesus comes along and radically upsets the apple cart by saying, no, love them. In Jesus' name, love them. Third application. There is a need for believers who know the law. Opponents of revival will want to use every means, including legal means, to be able to stop the work of God's people. And so, I want to encourage those of you who are younger, who are thinking about, well, what career could I get into? I want to offer to you one possibility, that is to engage in the law. Because there will become increasingly more and more opportunities for people who know the law to be able to apply it for God's good ends. And then the last thing I'll share with you, opposition is not the same as intimidation. The goal of opposition is intimidation, but when we face opposition, let us not be intimidated. That's why we started this uh, um, this, uh, this service with these words, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be intimidated, but set apart Christ Jesus as Lord. And always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for, to give a reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. Yes, there will be opposition to revival. God's plan and God's people will have opponents. But thanks be to God, he always leads us in triumph. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask in this moment that you'd help anyone who doesn't know Jesus to put their faith and hope in him. He alone can forgive sin by what he did at the cross. So, Lord, do your work of grace in imparting eternal life to someone here right now. Help them to see that without Jesus, they are lost. With Christ, they have not only abundant life now, but eternal life to come. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Now, in these messages and services that we are doing this fall in revival, we are alternating each week between having the Lord's table 
and praying together. So we're going to be praying in groups here in just a moment. What I'd like you to do is to meet up in groups of four or five people. I'll tell you when to do it, okay? But I'm going to explain it right now. You'll get in groups of four or five, and you may, you may pray out loud, or you don't have to. If you are not a Christian, just listen, because one of the things that God's people do is pray. Listen to how Christians talk to God, okay? And if you're in a group where nobody's talking, feel free to lean your ear over to some group that is, you know, or to pray quietly in your own, uh, own group in silence. But what we want to do is to generate a common recognition that something that Christians do when they, when they worship is pray. We pray together. Prayer is nothing but talking to God. And um, hopefully as we grow in this, we'll become more familiar with this idea so that it's not all coming from one voice out to you, but that the prayers of God's people are all being offered as a fragrant offering to God this morning. So stand up and gather in groups of four or five, and I'll have a prayer list here. All right, everybody found some folks? Good. Let's begin with this prayer. Pray for our government leaders that they may not believe the distortions told them about Christians. The king, Artaxerxes, believed a distortion that was told him about God's people. So let's pray for our government leaders that they may not believe the distortions told them about Christians. Let's pray right now about that. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for our government leaders and we ask that you would give them wisdom to see reality, that they would not believe any distortions or lies that are told them about those who truly believe in Jesus. Now let's pray that we may be winsome and true in all our dealings. Let's pray that we may be winsome and true in all our dealings.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not regard any opponents to Christians or Christianity or to Christ as enemies, but rather to love them, to care for them, and that we would be winsome and true in all of our dealings with everyone, that we may give a good testimony and reputation for Christ among those in our community, that they would see the light of the glorious gospel in us. Now let's pray that we will not be afraid or intimidated by opponents to the gospel. Father, the goal of the opponents in Ezra's day was to silence and to thwart their work. And we pray that we would not be afraid or intimidated, even as we treat everyone with gentleness and respect, that we would have courage in every place we go to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Give us that courage, Lord, because there's times where, frankly, we don't possess it in our own nature We pray for a supernatural blessing of courage to each one of us and to your people in Jesus' name. Now let's pray that we may ask for forgiveness of anyone whom we have wronged. Heavenly Father, we know that if the reputation of Christians hung on every one of our behaviors, we would probably um, say that Christianity wasn't true, for we have sinned. We've sinned against people. But Lord, we would ask that you would give us also courage to ask the forgiveness of anyone whom we may have wronged, that they would see that it's not that Christians are perfect, but that we are humble to acknowledge our brokenness, our sin, and our need of continued rescue by our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.